This week's TribCast is sponsored by Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's vision is for Texas to be the national leader in treating all people with mental health needs. Learn more at mmhpi.org. And Raise Your Hand Texas believes the future of Texas, our communities, economy, and citizenry, depends on how well we prepare all students. Meet your regional advocacy director, sign up for our newsletter, and get involved at raiseyourhandtexas.org backslash advocacy. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for June 10th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And today, a, a special Tribcast episode talking with Zach Despart. Fucking hell. Zach <laughs> Despart. All right. <laughs> now I'm all up in my head. All right. I'm starting over. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for June 10th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. This week, we've got a special episode, one guest, and it's Zach Despart, a politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. Zach was involved in a big story that ran, uh, that went up on our website late last night, a exclusive interview or kind of series of conversations with Pete Arredondo, the chief of the Uvalde Schools uh, police department, um, conversations with him and some of his representatives in which we got the first kind of in-depth uh, information from the chief's perspective on, on what happened in the Uvalde school, particularly for those 77 minutes when police were in the building but unable to get inside the classroom where the shooter was. Zach, first of all, you know, congratulations for, I think, what was a very important story that uh, I think gained a lot of attention. Can you tell us a little bit about just kind of your key takeaways from his interview? What stood out about what he told you? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I think first off, we were thrilled to be able to include his account. I mean, us and a million other reporters have been wanting to talk with him and other officials um, in the two weeks uh, since the shooting had happened. Uh, biggest takeaway, I think, is that uh, Chief Arredondo insists that he was not the incident commander of the shooting scene, as state police had said that he was and said that he did a, a poor and overly cautious job doing so. He said that uh, on the contrary, he was one of the first officers to arrive on the scene, that he rushed into the school with a couple of other officers. They found, as you mentioned, those classroom doors already locked the shooter inside, and they stayed right there in that front line uh, for the next hour and 15 minutes or so until they were able to finally find a key uh, to open that door. Yeah, you know, and that, of course, was the big question or one of the many big questions, right, is that, you know, Chief Arredondo, as, as many people already know, has been kind of pointed to quite a bit by people kind of outside the investigation, but also at times, you know, law enforcement officials who have been releasing information to the public about this, about, you know, decisions that they say were his decisions and that, you know, were in retrospect mistakes. And, and kind of what you're saying here is that he's basically like, I never even really knew I was in charge. That was not how he kind of viewed the the arrangement here which is you know an, an interesting thing to hear it certainly was yeah it has been a, 
a frustrating sort of reporting experience in the same way it is just a member of the public trying to parse what happened in part because the facts as presented by state officials have been incorrect at times. Um, so and in here again is, is Arredondo uh, contradicting some of what the state police have said. Uh, they really made it seem like he was uh, affirmatively directing the response, uh, giving orders, uh, giving inappropriate orders. And Arredondo was adamant to us that he gave no orders whatsoever. I mean, he, he said that he was um, in that hallway right outside that those classrooms with his you know, hand on his pistol, ready to, to pull it out if needed, that whole standoff. Um, he also wanted to dispel uh, the idea, the narrative that uh, when police found those classroom doors locked, that they merely stood around for an hour and 15 minutes until they found a key. Uh, yes, they were searching for a key that would work, but uh, Arredondo said he tried to make the most of that delay. He said that he um, asked uh, and helped coordinate the evacuation of students and teachers in other classrooms that they were able to access. And he credited that uh, decision for uh, protecting about 500 people. Yeah, so let's let's kind of just walk through the chronology of his version of events that happened here. I mean, basically, you said he was one of the kind of first people on the scene. And right when he arrived on campus, he made, you know, one of the the kind of important decisions of that of that kind of hour and a half almost of, of a response when he, he decided essentially not to bring his radios in, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there had been a lot of questions about that decision and whether that was um, a mistake on his part or just like not thinking carefully. On the contrary, he said that was a conscious decision. He purposefully left the radios um, outside the school. He said the reason for that was uh, he wanted to be able to have both of his hands free to uh, use his pistol if that was necessary. He felt like the radios would uh, bog him down. Uh, there were some, some pretty serious consequences to that, though, in, in the interviews that we did with police experts. Um, Arredondo had said, you know, most mass shooting events are over very quickly, which is true. This one wasn't. This one lasted more than an hour. So uh, because Arredondo uh, didn't bring the radios and at no point left the school to retrieve them and bring them back, uh, he was deprived of really the primary tool that officers use to communicate in emergencies. So it, it hampered his ability to understand, you know, yeah, he was he was outside the classroom door. He was ready to engage the shooter, but he didn't have a good sense of what 911 calls were coming in from inside the school. He didn't know what other officers were doing. He didn't know what other officers were on scene. So as, um, you know, by the book, he's supposed to be the incident commander being the, the most senior initial responder uh, and the one with the most knowledge about the campus, um, did not have uh, access to all of the possible knowledge he could have because of that decision. So then he gets inside and as you mentioned, he encounters a locked door and, you know, one of the, the, the big questions have been, you know, why did you wait for a key? Why didn't you break down the door? But he had an answer for that, um, at, at least that he felt was, was, you know, a, a reason to, to, to not do that. Right. Yes. Uh, he felt that um, uh, attempting, for example, to try and break down the door would have not been a good idea. He did request uh, materials, battering rams, uh, firefighters equipment uh, it, it, that would allow them to try to do that. But he thought that was a bad idea because one, uh, the door was was built to keep out 
intruders. And in this case, it worked. The problem was the bad guy was on the inside. Uh, and also because uh, in their initial approach to those doors, Arredondo said that the gunman fired through the walls and fired through the doors uh, and, you know, banging on the doors, trying to break it down, he thought would have unnecessarily uh, exposed police to gunfire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, one thing that really struck me about um, what he said and what was in your article was about the, you know, I think what he described as sprays of gunfire that that happened kind of toward the doorway um, in the initial attempts to open the door, and also a concern that the walls were so thin in that school, right, that if people were passing by or using their radios or doing some other things outside, that it might make them them targets um, to the gunmen um, mm -hmm. from, from the outside. So then we get to the keys, right, the, the, the 77 minute well, or, or it, I guess maybe all, not all 77 minutes are there, but the, the long wait for, for keys to get in. Tell, tell us a little bit about the agony of, of that process. Sure. Uh, this is where the police tactics experts that we talked to uh, were the most critical. They were astounded that the school district police, whose primary jurisdiction is this campus and these other campuses in the Uvalde School District, would not have uh, easy access to keys that would open any room for any purpose that they needed it to. Um, so Chief Ardondo um, had, uh, had asked others to help them find a key that would work. They enlisted a janitor and some other staff that were not quite sure, but you know they were brought uh, this big old ring of keys. Um, and Ardondo had said that they had tried dozens of them you know, and, and they just didn't work. And, and he described the process of like praying that, okay, this one, maybe this one will be the one that, that finally gets us in that finally allows us to end this shooting. And for a very long period of time, um, more than 40 minutes, like they were waiting so, to find that key. Um, it wasn't until uh, they finally did. And, and it was actually border patrol agents acting independent of, of Arredondo's direction who, who opened the door and killed the gunman. And, and, you, you also, I mean, okay, so in that time while you're waiting for the keys, is, are, are the officers just standing around? I mean, was there other activity going on? I mean, how, what, what else are we talking about here in this, this? I mean, I can't imagine how long that must have felt to them being kind of outside the school um, or outside, of, outside the door while this, you know, presumably people are, wounded, needing medical attention, some, some, you know, their lives still at risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Arredondo had said that um, there were officers uh, on the front line, so to speak, that were ready to engage the shooter at any moment, should he try to escape those rooms, those two adjoining classrooms, and shoot at people who were outside or kill other people. Um, he did stress though, that it was not as if there were officers sitting around with nothing to do and doing nothing. Um, like I said, he uh, said he had helped coordinate the evacuation of, of other rooms and officers assisted with that. They actually broke the windows of some other rooms because as you mentioned, they didn't want to evacuate uh, children through the hallway because of, of fears that stray bullets could, could easily harm them as well. Um, so his point was like, they didn't, they weren't doing nothing in that time they were waiting. They were trying to make the best uh, of a bad situation. All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Texas 2036, 
building long-term data-driven strategies to secure Texas's prosperity through our bicentennial and beyond. Find out more at texas2036.org. And Texas State Technical College has Texas covered. With 10 campuses across the state, and now with 20 new 100% online programs, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. Learn more at tstc.edu. Okay, Zach, so y'all's story, the, I, sh I should mention written with James Bettergon, your, your um, fellow uh, member of the politics team in the Tribune. It, it goes through this narrative, um, you know, from Chief Arredondo's perspective of what happened, but you also spent a lot of time over the last couple of days kind of running that narrative by other experts in law enforcement, kind of neutral parties in this to get their reaction to some of the things they said. What what's the takeaways from from that what are people what are the experts saying about the decisions that he made mm -hmm. well like i said i already mentioned about their their concerns about uh, that he didn't take the radio that was a mistake um that he didn't have his department didn't have ready access to keys they felt that was uh, poor planning for emergencies like this that could have conceivably unfortunately happened um and they also said you know uh they understood the the human side of, of Arredondo being a police chief, you know, wanting to rush in. This is one of his schools, wanting to confront the gunman himself, uh, wanting to end the, shoot, the shooting as quickly as possible, uh, which is Arredondo had said, like, you know, I'm going to remain right here outside the store for as long as it takes until we can go uh, neutralize him. They also stress the importance of, of police training, right, where as a commander, um, it's important for you to set aside those very human instincts and uh, supervise other officers to, to take a command role because that is, is part of your duty. Uh, and they said uh, his failure to do so, especially once they realized they could not quickly get in through those locked doors, um, took away possible opportunities to devise other strategies uh, and perhaps um, try a different approach that didn't take uh, upwards of 40 minutes to to find a key, for example. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions that I've seen kind of pop up is that if you can evacuate other children through windows, is there not an opportunity to go through the windows of the classroom where the shooter is in in order to engage with him and, and stop him? Yeah, that's a question that we had as well. And I look forward to, you know, the more thorough police investigations that look at the, the specifics of this. But in talking with experts, I mean, generally speaking, the doctrine for active shooters developed after Columbine uh, is you confront shooters as quickly as possible with everything you have as soon as you have it, right? So even if it's one officer with one pistol, like he is supposed to um, confront the shooter to the best of, of his ability. Uh, so they felt like even if, according to the doctrine, you put officers at great personal harm, that is still the right approach if it means you are putting yourself between the gunmen and innocent victims who, of course, are not armed, and in this case, were mostly children. So they said that uh, attempting to breach through the windows was certainly a possibility that should have been considered. Um, it may very well have, have caused police officers to be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, but they said that was still, I think what's important to, to, to phrase for readers is like, these are all bad options, right? These are all terrible outcomes, but some are less terrible than others. And if, for example, uh, one expert has suggested uh, 
the police were able to, to break a few of the windows just to be able to see in better, right? They had turned the lights off uh, as part of the, the, the shooting, um, as part of the protocols for these events, which made it very hard for police to see inside, see the children, see where the gunman was. They had suggested if they were able to break a few of those windows, um, sort of even on opposite sides in these two adjoining things, uh, able to see in and maybe stick a rifle inside, um, that was a possibility. Uh, and even just to keep the shooter engaged. I mean, one of the, the details that struck me a lot about um, this narrative is uh, one of the teachers who was wounded um, and ultimately survived uh, described a period at which um, he was lying on the floor, he had been shot, and the gunman had sat behind his desk, uh, his, his desk as a teacher, um, would suggest that like there was an extended period of time where the gunman was able to operate unhampered by police, even though they're outside the door. And I think that's a really, really hard thing for, for parents or people in the community, for observers to, to hear that like, they're, they're wondering, was there not a better way? Was there not a quicker way for police to um, engage the shooter? And I think those are, are some of the hard questions that we're looking forward to have better answers to. Do we know the answer as to whether the decisions that were made and the delays that happened cost lives on that day? That's another big question. We don't have a, we don't have a good answer to that. Um, there, there, are, there is some evidence that suggests that the delays could have possibly cost lives or led to, to more serious injuries. What I mean by that is uh, one of the teachers who was shot, um, uh, this is reporting from the New York Times, who did a very good job this week, uh, had uh, cited uh, one of the teachers, had, she was wounded and she was able to call her husband, who was a school district police officer who did respond to the scene. She was able to communicate to him uh, in the minutes after the shooting started that she had been shot, that she was alive, and that she was seriously wounded. Uh, and we know that um, at the time she was evacuated from the school, an hour and 15 minutes later, give or take, she was alive. Um, and she died on the way to the hospital, um, which suggests, we don't know, Suggest it's possible that had officers been able to act more quickly, that her life could have been saved. Yeah. What were you able to get a sense of the chief's mindset in the days after this tragedy? I mean, are we talking about defensiveness, grief, confidence in his reaction, all of the above? What 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 what, what is he saying about how he feels about all this? He said that he feels like he did everything in his power with the knowledge that he had at the time to end the shooting as quickly as possible and to protect as many lives as he could. That being said, um, he still described just feeling just devastated by this. I mean, he said that um, having to, to tell parents at the end of that horrible day that their children had been killed uh, was the lowest point in his, his three decades as a police officer. Um, and that he felt just a responsibility of like, this is my, my place. I mean, he's, he's from Uvalde. He went to Rob Elementary as a child, um, returned here to lead the school district police department. Uh, he was related to um, uh, the husband of one of the teachers who was killed. That man uh, had a fatal heart attack two days after his wife was killed. Uh, and, and much like most people that we talked to when we were in Uvalde had a personal connection to, to some of the victims. You mentioned you've you've spent time in Uvalde lately. Um, 
this is a man, this is a police chief who was elected to the city council just before the shooting and, and is now serving on the city council, although he has not um, uh, attended a meeting yet. It, it is also someone who there have been a lot of questions about whether he'll stay on as the police chief of this uh, school's department. Do we have any sense of what comes next for him? We don't have a great sense. He has been in hiding um, pretty much since the shooting. Um, and he said that, again, that was a, a conscious decision that he made. He said that um, he didn't attend his, his second cousin's funeral or um, the memorials or the funerals of, of other victims, uh, in part because he did not want to you know, attract unwanted public attention and sort of distract the, the grieving process for these families. Um, he uh, was sworn into the city council in secret, which uh, rubbed a lot of residents the wrong way. Um, he didn't show up to his first city council meeting earlier this week. Uh, we attended the, the first school board meeting after the shooting, which was last Friday, it was a week ago today. Um, the school board had the opportunity to, to discipline or even fire Chief Arredondo, um, and they chose not to. Uh, it doesn't mean that they won't in the future. It doesn't mean that he won't step down, um, but they didn't take uh, that action or any action against him. So we are, we are not sure. The residents we had spoke to in Uvalde almost to a person had said that they, they, want, they wanted to hear from him about why he did what he did and sort of have him defend his actions. Um, I think from the limited feedback we've gotten since the story published last night, um, people appreciate that he has offered his account because um, that at some level is is transparency to the best that, that we can vet at this point. Um, that doesn't mean that they agree with, with what he did and what his explanations are, but they are appreciative that he at least um, took the time to try to explain. I want to ask just too about the uh, y'all's approach to the story. I mean, this was a story that was presented kind of in a narrative form. It was kind of giving his version. There was also some, you know, at, like I said, you spoke to many experts and provided some analysis about why or about whether the decisions that he made. But I mean, it really was a forum to kind of get his perspective out there. Why did y'all decide that that was the best approach for this? Yeah, I think, you know, in explaining to readers, you know, our approach to this, uh, Chief Arredondo is a central figure uh, in the response to the shooting. Uh, he's not the only one we want to talk to, but we are grateful that he, he opened up with us. Uh, and he is the first uh, on-scene officer to give an extended, on-the-record, first-person account of his conduct. Um, and I think that is undoubtedly newsworthy. Uh, at the same time, we don't, and probably won't for many months, know uh, all the facts about what happened. Uh, the other, all of the other police agencies who responded, of which there were at least five, uh, none of them have detailed the actions of their officers on the scene. So there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. So we felt it was important to, you know, let's talk to experts on police tactics. Um, we have this full account from Chief Arredondo. Let's uh, let them read it, let them analyze it, let them help readers understand uh, what in their minds as experts uh, was appropriate or inappropriate conduct in Chief Arredondo. And ultimately uh, the goal is to help give readers enough information and enough context to reach informed conclusions about um, what they think uh, the chief should have done or what they were pleased that he did do. Again, like we are not experts in, in police tactics. Um, we felt that was the most responsible way to present this this very important and very difficult story. All right. 
Well, thank you so much, Zach, for, for talking about it and the work that you and James did. Um, that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, Raise Your Hand Texas, Texas 2036, and the Texas State Technical College. We'll talk to you all next week. Do it, do it, do it.